I watched the film The Holiday and I thought, does that even exist? All the money from my exit has been spent on my house, which is currently sitting empty. What I really want to do is go on holiday and stay in a home. But it was early. And it felt like there was a slice of that behaviour, which was people like me, people with families, people who like to travel, who are homeowners, who wanted to swap their home or their second home in order to go on vacation. There's a special place in hell reserved for women who don't help other women. So goes the now infamous quote by Madeleine Albright in 2016 at a Hillary Clinton rally. And those words clearly impacted today's guest. Debbie Wasco is the powerhouse entrepreneur behind the Albright Club and community championing, connecting and celebrating women at work. As the former CEO of Love Home Swap, a subscription-based home exchange business which she sold for $53 million in July 2017, she's had insights on the inside track that helped her change and shape her new mission. Back in 2015, she led the Independent Government Review Unlocking the Sharing Economy, also known as the Wasco Report. It was named after you, right? <laughs> yeah. Not my father. Yeah, yeah. Not, not like a great aunt or something. <laughs> She's a member of the Mayor of London's Business Advisory Board and sits on the board of the Women's Fiction Prize. And in 2016, she was awarded an OBE for services to business. So in a nutshell, she's pretty cool. And I think you got that. Which means now you've got the context, we can crack on with the content. But first, you know what time it is. It's time for some quick fire questions. Are you ready? Wow, Okay. Uh, that doesn't sound like someone. It sounds like <laughs> Semi-ready. Yeah, good. Fiction or non-fiction books? Fiction. Apple or Google? Apple. Facebook or Twitter? Twitter. Sheffield or Oxford? Oh, hard. Oxford, probably. Oh, shame. My father would really hate that one. I, was, I didn't expect that. <laughs> uh, Kate Winslet or Cameron Diaz? Oh, Kate. Kate. Most used app right now? Oh, Nextdoor. Oh, interesting. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that was popular over here yet. Yeah, need a new nanny next door. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cats or dogs? Neither. Allergic. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) Yeah, so I choose allergies. (laughs) Deserted on an island and you can take three things, but your kids are already there. Uh, Oh, novel. So I'm on the board of the Women's Prize for Fiction. And so my job is also to read the long list every year and the new ones are out to be published. So one of those probably. Scrabble set. I'm obsessed and it's a family sort of grudge match ongoing for years and probably a crossword. Oh, wow. Okay, fine. So just all all the brain teasers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, keeping yourself sharp. Okay, so early years, you grew up in Sheffield. So tell us a little bit about life in Sheffield. What what were your influences? What kind of family life did you have? Um, So I grew up in a Jewish immigrant family, third generation, the sort of family where business was very much discussed around the dinner table. But nobody, that sounds quite grand. Everybody was an entrepreneur in my family, but they would never have classed themselves as that. Yeah, they my basically, dad did the same. He was like, I'm a business owner. Yeah, business owner. And they sort of sold, you know, it's like schmatter businesses selling stuff on the markets. Yeah, yeah. I had the rug, rug trade. Yeah, so that, I suppose that, that was the context for me. When you look back and try and reflect on why you've had a sort of reasonably unusual career in that I only had a proper job for four years of my life. I think a lot of it is that very influence around not knowing anybody who had a proper job. So it was very common in my extended family, nobody went to work with anyone else. And in particular, the women in my family, my mother and my grandmother, who died aged 96 a few years ago, ran their own businesses. My grandmother survived her husband who was quite a lot older than her and died and ran his chain of sweet shops and off licenses um, across New York. She obviously wasn't getting high on her own supply if she lived that long. <laughs> no. And she drove her armoured vehicle around Sheffield. She never learnt to reverse it. One thing I have inherited from her is terrible driving. And that just normalised, I think, uh, with hindsight, what women do, how families work, how people work. And if you look at my siblings, I've got a lot of them because nobody in my family stays married for long periods of time. So if you count the full extension, there are seven of us. And most of us are working for ourselves. And in fact, my brother, Ben, worked with me at Love Home Swap and um, yesterday joined the ranks of Albright to come and run our digital business, which is really exciting. So there's something, I think, in the nature-nurture mix that means that that is what feels normal for us. 
because the other part of the family was academic excellence was sort of non-negotiable. Um, I'd be the third generation immigrant. Indeed. Like, so yeah. that that was important and obviously something in that work, I suppose, my brother and I being at the same Oxford College and all the rest of it. So and my father being the first person to go to university and going to Oxford. So, yeah, I guess that gives you a feel for, you know, the, the way that family life worked. Okay. And, um, you know, you've got, I would say, not a recognisable Sheffield accent going on now. Is that yes, something that you've so just worked? Much. Have you just worked that out of your system? Um, it's funny, isn't it? I, um, Do you know one of our other guests, Alex De Pledge? Of course. And she's a very, very good girlfriend of mine. Yeah, so to give you a, a feel... She's a friend of mine and she's that. definitely not she's lost that, her edge on the She doesn't sound quite like me. So I left Sheffield when I was 10 and moved to Leeds. My parents split up. So I actually grew up, I think we worked out eight miles away from Alex and we do sound a bit different. I had a reasonably posh education, I suppose, and then came to university in the South and all of my siblings are here and this is where I've been for the rest of my life. So I didn't have any elocution lessons or anything you like that. But I've acclimatised, yeah. yeah. But you do know that the rain in Spain was mainly on the plane, got it? All that, yeah. yeah but you know, you wouldn't admit it on a podcast. It <laughs> might, might have been the butler Alfred just giving you some elocution <laughs> lessons later in life. Yeah. Okay, so as you mentioned, you went to uh, university in Oxford. So I'm assuming, like you say, you know, that was always kind of the plan. Was it, yeah. was it very specific? You have to go, you have to try for Oxford, you have to get into Oxford. Or was it more like you've got to go to university and, and study well, but not specifically Oxbridge? No, it was very specific. Yeah? Um, Never Cambridge, always Oxford? No, yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, what was the reason behind that? My father had been there and it was a great pride to him. He famously um, played blues football and hit the bar at Wembley when the varsity match used to be played there. So that was quite in family folklore for my course and we were taken there. I think about it with my kids, actually. We were just taken there every year from being little. And right. that's sort of what was expected. Well, and I guess it was. to know where they'll be going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Same thing. Hate break tradition. How do you feel if you went to Cambridge? I don't know how I'd feel. Disgusted. Wrong. Appalled. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Ashamed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not smart enough. No, kids sorry. Um, so uh, what did you actually want to be when you grew up? I always wanted to work for myself. I didn't really have a feel for what that meant, but I suppose the other part of my education, I went to a, a girls' school that was very much about being the best you could be and described itself as a school of unusual excellence. What did that mean? I did Young Enterprise um, as a kid. That was quite a big part of my school career. Um, we created an award-winning scrunchie business, it being the 80s, which ended up being sort of sold in Asda. And I won the National Young Enterprise Finals when I was 15. And that just gave me a feel for that. And I liked, if I reflect on it, coming up with a thing, working in a team. I like always like to target. So it felt something like that would be what I would do. And I was very, always read the business pages of the paper without really quite fully understanding it. And then when I was at university, I did work experience in the city and I hated it. Where did you work? Where are you going to name and shame for us? I mean, it doesn't exist anymore, so I can. It was called Climate Benson, which then became part of Dresden. And it was so old school. So to give you a feel, because I know that he's no longer alive... I worked on the trading floor, which as a 20-year-old girl is a sort of uh, back in 1993, as it would have been, was quite an experience. Mm -hmm. And I worked for the head of the Latin American equities desk, who on a Friday would bring his pet wolves into the office. What? Not an exaggeration. so absurd. And so it was, I mean, look, it was then, right? It was sort of what the city used to be like. So it's it did Pet wolves, the pet city wolves. used to be. That was normal. It, seemingly so. I feel like when I see someone walking a cat, it feels really <laughs> odd. The pet, pet wolves, wolves I raise you. He was yeah, legendary. That didn't feel like quite where I wanted to land. And I ended up doing the milk round so far, so boring, and became a management consultant, mini management consultant when I graduated. Okay. So, I mean, you know, at the very least, you left Oxford and did the job that a lot of people end up doing because it's perfect. Yeah. So, I, you know, I went to um, I went to Nottingham and, you know, it's, it's, it's different, but you... You leave unis like that thinking there are only about four jobs. Yeah, the yeah. Is, there were maybe you're five. Be a lawyer, a banker, and a management and, consultant, yeah. or you're going to work on the L'Oreal grad scheme. <laughs> yeah. There has to be some other jobs in the world, I swear. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, okay, so when you were 25, you set up your first company, Mantra. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so reflect on that for us. Like, were you were you scared? Did it feel comfortable? Like, what and, and why PR? I was 25. I didn't really know much about much. It was the beginning of dot com one. So what I did know is that a lot of people I've known and been at university with, and you know, Martha Lane Fox, all these people I've known since we were kids, were doing stuff, and that felt really exciting. I think it was. You know, one of the first times in business history, and we and we see this, you know, again now, where being young was prized. It was important. It felt like there was a moment where you had things that you could teach people with way more experience. Some of which was true, and some of which was really not true. YPR didn't know anything about PR really, but it felt like what I had been good at as a management consultant was storytelling, working with clients, understanding what was important, what I was really bad at relative to most management consultant graduates was I, you know, I hadn't done a maths or an engineering degree. I was a girl. I was one of two girls who joined the um, graduate intake of the firm that I worked for. But there were bits of it that felt transferable. And at the time, it felt in the gold rush people that make money supply the picks and shovels and it also felt like all I really needed was a phone and a very clunky computer and some chutzpah in order to get going and and that was how it was and is that it, true yeah I mean it was a massive crash course in understanding cash flow and a PL and how to run something and how to build a team and how to manage people when you're a kid and you're employing people a lot older than you you know in the first year we were successful and we invoiced um, a lot of billings and we had a great client list and we were the sort of hot new thing and we made about a 50 grand profit because we pissed money out the wall on all sorts of nonsense. Our office, because PR. Yeah, you cool. know, yeah. And and so you, you just learn my whole business education was the first few years of that business. I'm so grateful to it because... You're always in that kind of world, two client wins away from greatness and two client losses away from disaster. Yeah, like any agency. You know, people laying down and all that. So of all of the businesses to start with, you know, it's very far removed from what I do now and from what I went on to do. But to have that as a grounding in obsessively being on top of cash flow, checking the bank account every day worrying about how you're going to grow, how whether the team is the right team. N- none of that changes. And I think you just learn it through getting it wrong a lot in your early 20s, mid-20s. And also, how did I feel? What do you have to lose? You know, you're a kid. I, I, honestly, I, I don't really think twice about it. Partly probably because of this point that everyone I knew in my family did it. Everyone I knew around me at the time, it was very much more normalised than even it had been three or four years ago where your point is absolutely right. You were a banker or an accountant or a lawyer or whatever. It felt quite de-risked. And it felt like, and, and this has got me into trouble in life, but one of my mantras is always what's the worst that can happen, you know? And it felt like that at the time. And that, that's how it was. That's how it started. And what happened to it then? So, like, when did when did, when did did Mantra's doors close? I sold it in 2007 to the Lowy Group, which at the time, if one can remember back to then, there were quite a lot of marketing services roll-ups, so sort of mini WPPs that were going to market on AIM. Oh, and that was the other one, WPP. You could always try and apply for that at uni. I was at uni at 2007 and okay. I remember WPP, okay. but, you know, constantly trying yeah. to uh, get people to right. apply for them. And, right. then, and then obviously turning down, down everyone. Right, right, right. So uh, Mantra was sold then. So I was 33, had my first exit. Um, it was the year that I had my first child. Um, you know, it was a big year. You know, you have to... Your reputation as entrepreneur, as it grows over time, is all about whether you can deliver, whether you can deliver the exit, whether you can deliver return on investment to investor. You know, it's very practical and pragmatic. And I think if I look at the decade that's followed, it was really, really important. Mantra was important. It was a seven-year business education, for better, for worse. Those businesses are really hard to scale. In terms of the business of PR, I'd sort of stopped being interested in that, but I was interested in the business of business. But having said all of that, 
the ability to story tell and to realize because I'm my expertise is in business to consumer to realize what it is that consumers want and how to talk to them about what they want is absolutely integral to everything I've done since then so it was a brilliant first start Let's talk about um, uh, Love Home Swap then. Yeah. So you you exited in twenty sorry two thousand seven. Yeah. So when did you start Love Home Swap? So, when did the idea start? Or yeah. So after I sold um, Mantra, I did an earnout, and then I set up something called Maidthorn Partners with a guy called Simon Walker, who had been the head of strategy at the BBC. He was an old friend of mine, and we had a really fun sort of eighteen months or so where. Um, he lived on Maid Avenue and I lived on Thornton Place, hence Maidthorn. And it was basically just our vehicle to invest some of our money and stuff and to come up with ideas that we liked and see whether they got traction. So, And he was a great person to do that with, super clever guy. And off the back of that, the story behind Love Homestock also happens to be true, which is convenient, which is that I went on holiday when my... you do know uh, as a PR professional that <laughs> we all require a good story, and this Indeed. one's almost And this too one good. I was told yeah. sort of ad nauseum, but to reprise it, I went on holiday when the kids were tiny. My daughter was three months old, and we went to the Caribbean to really, you know, spraunzy place, and we just sat in the hotel room because I was feeding one and the other wasn't sleeping sort of watching the TV with the sound off and all of us in a room. And on the flight on the way home, I watched the film The Holiday, which is not an incredible film, but nonetheless. I quite like it. When it's played in the background of every media interview you've done for five years, you do slightly tire of it. Anyway, um, and I thought, does that even exist? Because actually all the money from my exit has been spent on my house, which is currently sitting empty. And what I really want to do at this time in my life is to go on holiday and stay in a home. And this was the very early days of Airbnb and what became the sharing economy, but nobody called it that then. They sort of said, talked about collaborative consumption. and But, it, you know, it was early. And it felt like, actually, there was a, a slice of that behaviour, which was people like me, um, which often meant people with families or young families or people who like to travel, who are homeowners, who wanted to swap their home or their second home with people like them in order to go on vacation. And that was how the idea for Love Home Swap um, came about, and that was 2009-10. And then uh, the test for me is always, can you leave it alone? Or is it, because I'm quite an obsessive person, is it sort of keeping you awake at night and you're doing various PowerPoints and messing about with it? And it just felt like, and I suppose this is the point on P, with a PR and everything, I felt in the mood music there was a thing. So I did what, you know, what we do, went away, built, spent a bit of money, built a thing, tested it a bit. And then the, one of the sort of inflection points was my brother, Ben, was going to do his MBA um, back to Oxford, actually. And I said to him... I don't think anyone was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, why are you doing an MBA? And my brother had joined the Financial Times, which is, of course, the other thing that graduates sometimes do, on the graduate schemes. He was a linguist, so he'd done all sorts of funny jobs there, but he'd ended up running marketing for FT.com. And I said to Benny, look, don't do an MBA. I've had this idea. Come and do it with me. I'll salary you for the first six months. He's my impoverished youngest brother. And let's see if there's something there. And that's what happened. And that was sort of 2011, um, and the business launched properly. We had 250 homes on the site. I don't know how many there are in it now, 500,000 probably, something like that. And that was the journey from 2011-12 through to selling the business in 2017 um, and scaling that business for homeowners around the world and then um, raising capital and Wyndham who eventually bought the business investing in 2015 and then buying the business in 2017. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. 
But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. How much do you think on retrospect now that the dust has settled, etc.? Obviously, I'm sure you were delighted to get investment in the first place, as is any entrepreneur sure. realistically. But how much do you think that that then limited your opportunities? You know, it's a good question. And it's something that you think a lot about at the time if you're taking strategic money. Um, for us, it worked out really well. And it worked out brilliantly for the business. And and the the lens to that was because it was partly about the money, but it was also about solving some problems that we needed to solve in order for the business to scale, specifically some really unsexy stuff that you don't think about when you're watching the movie The Holiday and coming up with the idea. So our business required very high-touch customer service support. It required call centers. It also required audience. So part of the reason to take the Wyndham Capital was it was Capital Plus. One, we were able to use their pre-existing call centers around the world in order to both support existing members and to sell to potential new members. Two, they owned RCI, which is the world's biggest timeshare business. And there is a really obvious subsection of that audience that was a love home swap audience. So we couldn't actually have accelerated the growth of the business in the way that we did in the two years between them investing in our exit. And and it's exactly two years since I left without them as investors. So I would say every case is different. Every relationship with any investor has its moments. But have your eyes open in terms of what it will take to scale your business above and beyond capital. For us, it, it worked out. And your first round was something like £7 million, is that correct? The very first round that we did for Love Home Swap was, because I funded the business to start with, we raised a million pounds from MMC Ventures um, with, and then a few other people sort of in the mix on top of that. And then when Wyndham invested, they invested seven and a half. Right. And was it just that? Up until exit, or was there, were there other rounds along the way as well? In total, with the bits and pieces in between, a few convertibles, et cetera, et cetera, we re- it, it took us £11 million in capital to get to a £40 million exit. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's a... Uh, it was know. pretty efficient. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a very efficient um, story. Yeah. Uh, and from, you know, the perspective of an entrepreneur, I guess because you, as is an assumption, but because you'd already exited a business and had a very um, like clear understanding of how to operate the vision on this business, I'm assuming funding was considerably easier but did you still find moments where you struggled with it like any any horror stories that you can recount for us to give some context sure. for some of the human beings that listen to the story <laughs> yeah look it's it's a difficult one. it does get easier in the sense that for Albright which we'll get to we've raised 25 million pounds in capital in 18 months which is a lot although it does require a lot as a business it gets easier. Someone's got to fix those toilets and plumbing. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. It gets easier 
what gets easier is the beginning is a lot easier because you go to people who back you before. People got four times return on Love Home Swap, plus actually a bit more for the very early lot. And going to them and saying, I've got a new thing and it looks like this is significantly easier. So what you don't have is the problems that you have when you're just starting out and you've never done it before. With really, the only way you're going to raise that first slug of capital is from friends and family. So it extends who your friends and family are. So for something like Albright... You already had a massive family. I mean, yeah, (laughs) they don't give me any money, but my brother does give me his time. So for Albright, for example, we raised a three million pound round to seed the business through an advanced subscription agreement that was unpriced, but EIS put, you know, you also know what you're doing. And a big part of doing it in the UK is you've got to become an accountant. You know, you really have to understand the tax incentives that are in place for individuals. And you that is a 20-year journey for me. I just know how to do it. Mm. Are there moments? Oh, my God. I mean, there are always moments. I mean, Love Home Swap, before that, Wyndham money closed because it always takes longer than you think or than you'd want um, particularly actually if you're dealing with an organization of that size so in 2015 you know we had a thousand pounds in the bank account with payroll looming and all the rest of it and any entrepreneur who says that hasn't happened to them is not being truthful you're, yeah, all, I mean, you're lawyers, always in that situation my lawyers describe a startup as always insolvent you know when i was talking to them like we're insolvent i feel so uncomfortable They're like dan everyone's yeah, insolvent. yeah don't yeah. worry about it like, uh, oh, okay i think that's a big Part of it is, and in Albright, um, you know, Anna, my co-founder, is new to this game because she had had a very elegant career compared to my very scrappy career and had, the, you know, the corner office and the whole nine yards. I would say a big part of the first couple of years for her has been getting used to exactly that, which is that the um, discomfort of operating in a much more financially uncertain Uh, context and future is part of life and I'm just used to it and you forget how used to it you are until you um, bring in you know really really qualified senior hires as we have done at Albright who are not used to it and it is uncomfortable. So just staying on the uh, before we move on from it the £1,000 in your bank account um, reality how many employees did you have at that moment? Probably 30. And how did you communicate with them? I think there's stuff people need to know and stuff people don't need to know. And everyone has a different answer to this question, which is why it's interesting, right? Because, of course, um, you don't know how you're going to behave until you're in that moment. I think you need to have broad shoulders as a founder. And I think you also need to be transparent. And there's a line. So I think transparency, the way I've always done it, better for worse, is communicating with the team weekly on targets and performance this is how we're doing. On the first of the month, every month, standing up and saying, this is the target for the month, guys. You know, I've always been in very created sales-driven environments. We have to. Everything I've ever done is, this is the number. We've got to hit the number. I think explaining to them and most definitely to the management team, and again, the way that I've always structured it is that everyone in the business has equity and the management team have, you know, significant chunks of equity. They are owners of the business, and so they need to know we're coming up to a funding round. I mean, they, they would anyway because they need to input into the investor deck and the little, little, all of that. Do I stand up and tell the whole company we've got a thousand pounds left in the bank account? No. Is that for me to deal with? Yes. Um, if we had run out of time, would that be for me personally to solve? Yes. You know, I think it would. That, that's a, accountability and that's leadership. But people can't feel excluded from the narrative. But take it from me after a long time doing this, there's certain things people really don't want to know. And so that that's on you to figure that out. And what about you mentally and personally on support? So in those moments, um, you've got a £1,000 in a bank yeah. account and you've got a team of 30 and you've got children at the time. So who did you go to for support and community? Um, and do you feel like at that time you had a good support network to deal with those kind of emotional moments? I think it's hard. And I think... You were a sole founder at that, in that business, right? Yeah. I mean, and I just mom... find that personally so impressive. Weirdly, a lot of my female friends who are founders seem to be single founders more commonly than male founders, which is doubly amazing. But um, it's not a choice I'd ever choose to make knowing how good having a co-founder can be it's much harder but I had never really had a a co-founder in that way in the way that I do have with Anna um you know Albright's trials and tribulations are a problem shared 
love home swap. I had my brother working in the business, but it was a bit different because he wasn't, the setup wasn't quite like that. We hadn't founded the business together in the same way. It's hard. I think some of it as well as the context to an Albright um, moment, which is Alex and Tam, essentially you mentioned both of them, and Sarah Wood and that crew. I would go to people like that, and it did end up being the girls because inevitably at that time you felt like you could do real talk. I think there's still a point on having to have your game face on and and as a woman you're you're very conscious that you feel like you have to have it on permanently. My nature is to be quite I would be careful about who I talked about things. Our world is very gossipy, you know, so I'm very mindful of that and I I would work out my own routine and my routine is very because of the OCD and everything else, very sort of structured. So I get up, I go, I train every morning, I hit the punch bag, you know, that sort of thing sort of keeps you going. It's not an easy life. And I think you do need to be very resilient in terms of your own approach to dealing with the crap and to dealing with pressure. I'm good under pressure. I'm calm under pressure. I'm not a shouter. And I think you develop that personality through exposing yourself to it. But do I feel like as a founder with that level of responsibility that there are lots of places to turn to to have that conversation? No. The thing that strikes me is you have a very clear uh, sense of uh, your business persona. Do you think there's any separation between your personal and business persona whatsoever? Would you describe you know, yourself at home? Is Debbie at home with her kids different in any kind of way yeah but I think it's I'm very aware of it so with my kids you're not their boss in that way and I think with my kids you're listening mum I am, yeah. I, I really am in a no, way that, that I'm probably not work. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, you know, for my kids and I, um, I've been on my own with them since they were tiny because I divorced my um, husband when they were three and one. So it's, it, we've been a very close unit. Um, I think that they have had to, they've had a sort of different type of childhood in some ways because my work's always been part of our lives. We've had to figure it out between the three of us in, in a world where Albright exists. You know, they eat dinner in their three nights a week. They're going to get scurvy from the charcuterie plate. You know, they, they, they just so probably, yes. I think a lesson that I have really had to learn with relationships is that you can't expect a relationship to work like your work relationships work because the other person is a living, breathing human where you're not their boss either. And I think that can be a challenge sometimes for entrepreneurs who are so driven to figure out how to make relationships succeed for the long term and how to be soft. Again, I think that then plays back into your work life, actually, because you can find, I I feel, when you're in that grim determination mode and when it's all about telling the story and the money and the you know you have to be able to be soft and vulnerable as well and that doesn't come as easily to me inevitably we get asked Anna and I get asked a lot about work-life balance because it's the obvious question to ask a business founded by two women (laughs) I think the best we can shoot for is work-life blend what does that mean for me that means my kids coming into work it means me living centrally so that I can get home. It means my kids being at school near to where I work. So it's a big juggle, inevitably. I think that um, does it come at a personal cost? Does it come at a cost to relationships? It's very hard to make space for everything. And I think as a woman, it's still the case that you're expected to parent like you don't have a career and be in your career as if you don't have children. And I think it is different. And hopefully it's changing and things like shared paternity leave. You know, Alex to pledges oh, favourite topics. I but, uh, you know, I share, I, I can't share, believe you brought it up yeah, yeah. I share so much of that as this close-knit group of female founders do share because we all juggle, struggle, find our way through the same stuff. Life's often a three-legged stool in terms of work and relationships, family. And and it's often hard to have all three legs on the ground at once, and I'm not sure I've always pulled that off. And in the business that I run now, Unlove Homeswap, they're travelling jobs, and, and that's where 
the strain comes, what does that mean? I'm very, very good at going a long way for a very, very short period of time. Um, You know, I go to New York and I sleep on the plane. I go to L.A., which I have done every third week for a year for 24 hours. You know, would I do that if I didn't have my children? I mean, no one in their right mind would do that. It's a long way. But you just do what you have to do. And then I'm lucky enough, actually, because I'm relentlessly optimistic about everything, which can be slightly sort of Pollyanna-ish and annoying. But it does mean my whole setup over the years has meant that I can bring the children with me. You know, I opened the Albright in Los Angeles over the summer. We were all out there for six weeks. You just, it's like anything. You just That's where that turn comes from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coming on to Albright, so you, you started, I mean, you've already mentioned this um, in this interview, but you started with your co-founder, Anna Jones, yeah. um, who had a corporate career previously. She did, yeah. So how did, the, how did the conversation go? I mean, obviously, you know, I'm sure it wasn't just one conversation, but you've got two very different mindsets mm, coming mm-hmm. together. And of course, you can learn a lot from each other. But did she come at it from a, a place of fear, like you would imagine a rational person that's been in a career all her life would be? It, it it was very organic. So we were. what happened was we were set up at a party by a mutual friend. Warren Johnson, the PR guy, hosts this very grand annual summer party at his palatial home in Queen's Park. And I knew him because he was a parent at the school and he was doing AJ's PR at Hearst, where she was the CEO. And he said to me, someone I want you to meet and you two should be friends. And it was... A moment we often refer to as sort of when you've pulled at a party. It was sort of that moment where we had loads in common. She's also um, a sort of northern refusenik. She grew up in York. She was a female CEO, not so like she, many. She sounds like she, she, she yeah, sounds okay, a bit more good, like yeah, than I do. No That's one of her, her points. No, kids the same age. But really, what happened was she was just um, great fun. And we just bonded, but in the same way as I have done with lots of my other girlfriends, this sort of core collective of of women. The difference with AJ and I was, I suppose, stages in our lives and careers. So over the six months that followed, we would meet for breakfast or gin and tonic, which is our thing, and chat. And some of it was life, the universe and everything. But I think I was starting to think about what next? Because the way that the Wyndham deal had been constructed was there was a sort of two-year period. So I had a feel for I was going to be out of there in six months' time. Anna had been made... And you are not the type of person that just sits on that. No. Hands. Um, so I was, my brain was starting to go a bit. And, and I, with me, I can sense, oh, that's interesting. Or, you know, sort of, anyway, just sort of messing about with things. My son, who is 11, has a very similar personality. And there's lots of PowerPoints sort of floating around with his various ideas for uh, reimagining the airline industry, which is a separate topic. Anyway, so... We were sort of, I was a bit in that mode. Anna had been CEO of Hearst at 37. So she'd been there for, been CEO for three and a half, four years. And I suppose she was sort of thinking, is this it? In the sense of, she was very much on a track where she would leave, she'd become CEO of something else. Then she'd become CEO of a FTSE thing. Then she'd become, you know, she was on that track. But she had, while she had never been an entrepreneur because she'd worked her way up from essentially a graduate trainee at Hearst being the CEO, massively impressive. It was quite an entrepreneurial gig because there was a lot of reimagining the magazine industry and and she'd always had that itch to scratch. So it went quite quickly to our shared topic that got us out of bed in the morning, pain point, mission, desire to build legacy. But also in both of us, there's a bit of a fuck you thing, which is... How do we build a billion-dollar business by women, for women, about women? Because that has not been our work experience. And I mean this respectfully and great, gratefully, graciously. I hope to everyone who's ever backed me into everyone. You never come across women. You certainly didn't in the noughties. My God, you know, when you meet another one, it's like a, you know, unicorn moment. And we know all the stats and we can, I can do all of those, but you know what they are. 
2% of capital. A penny in the pound goes to back a business co-founded by two women. And we it was in our real lives. AJ was the only female CEO of Hearst in its history, despite the fact that 80% of its title re- reached a female audience. So we quite quickly got to that and got to this project Albright. As you opened the, the show after the Madeline quote, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Because what we felt very strongly was if women could crack sisterhood, if women could build better networks, network outside of their swim lane, that would help them to build confidence and resilience, which is often where they're lacking, and to skill up in areas where they feel like they can't do X, Y, and Z because they're not, they don't know how to do the thing, whatever the thing is. So it, it got there super quickly, and we had this... We were sitting in Little House. We had this cocktail menu that we carried around. (laughs) We've still got it somewhere months afterwards with all this. So I think what AJ and I have always had is we bounce off each other a lot. We're we're really, really good mates. I think quite a lot of people are really like, do you really? Because we seem to really like each other. Do you really like each other? We really like each other. Um, We have a laugh. I really, really respect her. And I think she would say the same about me. And so, and we're really good at different things. So how did she feel? You'd have to ask her. I'm sure she had moments of, oh my God, you know, so she should have done it. It was a massive change. I've done scrappy stuff my whole life. Nobody's paid me a salary since I was 24 years old. Very different for her, two children, all the rest of it. But we just did it. And what happened was she came out, I was on holiday in that summer, and she came out on the holiday for three days and there was a moment of sort of looking each other in the eye and saying, are we going to do it? And I think if you asked her about it, she would say, she knows me well enough now, but she did then. When I'm in, I'm in. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And then that gave her the confidence to jump. And then that, that's what we did. And how much money have you raised so far? Did you mention £25 million? We've raised twenty-five million pounds, and is that all from female? Did you have a? Is it all from female investors, or did you have a moment where you're like, "We're just going to do this from female investors," and then, as you've kind of alluded to earlier, realised that actually might be incredibly difficult? What what was the story? So we had a very um, highfalutin ideal at the beginning that fifty percent of the capital we raised in any round would be from female founders, uh, female investors. Sorry. no chance. We would have funded one of the loos and one of the buildings. Like, it's just not there yet. So, yeah, and you do have uh, an actual mission to fulfil and you can just get stuck in the detail there, which is probably not it's the quite best an, decision. Uh, it's quite an early lesson. I think it's fascinating, always fascinate, fascinating and really hard, the hardest business I've ever done because you accidentally find yourself in the hospitality industry and all sorts of things you never thought about suddenly come to your doorstep mm. and it's a living, breathing beast. And you're learning to ask everyone what allergies they have. It, it, right, it's real. It's really real. So it's hard, it's super hard. What's also interesting is it feels much more public property for people than anything else I've ever done because it's about women. And women and men have very strong reactions to what we're doing. Often super positive, enthusiastic, supportive. You know, I genuinely feel like we've changed the lives without sounding like an idiot, but we have for lots of people who are our members, who have gone through our free academy, who are on Albright Connect. However, to my earlier point on is there one type of entrepreneur, there's certainly not one type of woman. And when we raised... um, the sort of first big investment round that we raised in the summer of 2018, we brought in a male chairman, um, Alan Layton, who chairs, he's probably the best known chairman in the UK, chairs Wagamama, Pandora, the co-op, he was the CEO of Asda, and he has invested, you know, a big sum personally twice now. To us, that just seemed like a really good idea because... Alan Layton was investing personally. We're by far the smallest company that he chairs. He's, a, you know, in all of those businesses, a, a big employer, big employer of women. It seemed like great advocacy, but for certain women, it was a betrayal. And for certain parts of the press, it was an indication that our mission was really compromised. I think times have changed, actually, even in the last year. I think there's much more of an understanding of the role that men have to play. But it's a bit with a feminism. And we do have a very particular view that's very inclusive, and that isn't everybody's view. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's just unbelievably nuanced, isn't it? Very, very much. And I think we didn't realise how nuanced it was when we started. Yeah, because I can, I, I mean, obviously, as can anyone rational, you can see 
absolutely the downside to those decisions. And at the same time, they are obviously the right ones. I personally have difficult issues on the feminism side. Like the feminism should be about equality. That's the only way that it works. So if the best person for the job at the time is that guy, that's the best decision for the time. And also from a practical point of view is a business decision and you're trying to lift up and change something. So like we said, you can't just sit around waiting for something magical to happen if it's not going to, because yeah. actually then your mission gets compromised Yeah, more than anything. What is the vision? Well, the vision is to build this kick-ass monster global sisterhood um, that exists, that changes the way that women work and feel about work. So it's quite a high-octane mission. And how do we do that? We do it in spaces, and we've learned a lot about how physical spaces stand for something above and beyond just bricks and mortar. So we have two buildings in London, one in Los Angeles, New York and Washington, D.C. are opening next year, and they are beautiful. The, all of the art on the wall is by women, the wine behind the bar, the hand wash in the basins and all the rest of it. We can program those spaces. And so a big part of what we do is really a content business as, as you would define it, in that it means that we can build networks, we can showcase female talent, we can speak to issues that women want to speak to and men. And the buildings are pillars, content pillars and points um, a moment in time and a moment in place where women can spend time they're hard to scale you know it's taken Soho House 25 years to do 25 we've done three in 18 months so read into that what you will in terms of our level of madness you know they're hard did you ever reach out to him yeah I mean I, I think there were really interesting conversations and I think it will be really interesting actually to look at how this business gets funded on going to our earlier point about from who and from where I think what we've proven in a short space of time is that Women want spaces like this. Membership's super busy. Buildings are really busy. The community's very vibrant. And then alongside that, it's how do we build connection and skill women up online. So we have Albright Connect, which is our LinkedIn for Women app, which enables women to connect and message with one another about work. There are lots of bills on that. That's the thing that my brother's come in to run um, from in terms of what women want, mentors, mentor matching, obviously recruitment and a sort of LinkedIn recruiter is an interesting model for us. And we also run the Albright Academy, which is completely free. You pay to be an alumni, but it's free to do the courses. We developed three, one for entrepreneurs, one for executives, and one for freelancers and consultants. Next week, I am going to Hong Kong and Sydney. Sydney for 24 hours is always fun. To launch the Asian version of Albright Connect and the Academy and to launch it in Australia. So there's a very clear strategy for us as a business which is we scale up the physical spaces, we build the digital community that connects and coalesces around what does the Albright experience look like online. We publish magazines. That's what my business partner did for years. I kind of can't leave that alone. But again, that's another content pillar. And we wrote a book called Believe, Build, Become, which Penguin published in June, uh, which is you know another way of us talking practically about how to supercharge your career as a woman. Like we said, legacy. Legacy, yeah. So wrapping up now, because I could talk for hours about this, I think it's been wonderful. So thank you for being so open, Pleasure. by the way. But um, sadly, you know, we've got our limits on time. Indeed. So I have to ask, uh, what's the most impactful thing anyone's actually said to you that's, that's you know, lasted? It's always such a hard question. You know, honestly, I, I build on that or what would I say to others? I do talk a lot about grit. I'm not, um, to your point on fiction or non-fiction, you know, fiction's my thing. I'm not a massive reader of business books. You like Angela Duckworth. I do, because there's a lot in there. I really believe that grit trumps genius every time, as all the data shows, and I'm a data geek. Um, and I'm, I talk, I'm an Angela Duckworth geek. And so she's really amazing. And I, you know, one. and I, I got my, just got my son to read it. And it's a really massive message for me with the children and in life is it does take grit. And I think people don't talk enough about how hard it is and that in any moment or week or month, it can be impossible and challenging and boring and, and you know, every other negative emotion in between. But it doesn't matter because it's about whether you've got the grit to keep going. 
And what is your, um, you know, you've got your your vision, you've got your legacy. What are the words of wisdom that people are going to remember um, from Debbie Wasco? What's the, what are the words that you could leave with our audience that you know aren't taken straight from Angela Duckworth? Because we'd we'd recognise <laughs> that kind of theft. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly. Nice try though. I mean, look, this point on what's the worst that can happen sounds simple, but for me. It is a huge privilege in my working life, throughout my working life, but now at Albright, to speak to awesome women all day, every day, who are held back often by a variety of different factors, but often by themselves. And I think that point on what is the worst that can happen, give it a go, alongside recognising how hard it is. If I could change one thing, what we see in Albright bears out the stat. One in 10 women in the UK say they want to start their own business, but they don't. And I think just getting more of them to do it, more of them to do it from the perspective of UK PLC, which God knows needs it right now. But also because, for better or for worse, I have a pretty awesome life and a really and it's never boring and i would want hope try to support encourage more women and men but i suppose my dog in the fight is women to do the same and that sense of what is the worst that can happen i think is a question that's important to ask yourself beautiful it's going to be tough but what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> thank you very much debbie it's been a pleasure, pleasure. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. There is not enough women receiving funding for businesses. I think part of that is because women want to do things slightly differently and don't necessarily want to get on a treadmill where you have no life, which is what VC funding basically means. We are the caretakers and it's really hard for us to put ourselves first and to know that for you to be your best at anything, whether it's your business or your life or whatever you're doing, you have to take care of yourself first. We are delighted to bring you a double helping of female empowerment. Next week for International Women's Day, you'll be hearing from four incredible female founders as we discuss female entrepreneurship and gender equality in business. You'll hear from Renee Elias of Planet Organic and now Beluga Bean, Alex DePledge of Hassel and now Resi, Alethea Navarro of Skimlinks and now Flown, Resh Masahoni from Seedcamp on the statistics and future of venture capital with regards to equality. They all come together in conversation to talk about their past experiences and their view on the future. So you'll be glad to know that you'll hear less from me and more from them. So tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.